0: Um, some of you may or may not know this, I'm not going to use names, um, but this happened about a week or two ago. There's a, a singer-songwriter of Christian music, and I choose my words carefully there, um, a singer-songwriter of Christian music who wrote on his Instagram page, uh, whatever that is, the following and i'm going to read all this so that we have context of what's happening because we hear little bits and pieces from people if you've heard this story but i want to i want to tell you what it actually says so this is what this man wrote time for some real talk i am genuinely losing my faith and it doesn't bother me like what brothers sorry like what bothers me now is nothing this is very millennial speak if you can't pick what generation he's from What bothers me now is nothing. I'm so happy now, so at peace with the world. It's crazy. This is a soapbox moment, so here I go. How many preachers fall? Many. No one talking about it. How many miracles happen? Not many. No one talks about it. Why is the Bible full of contradictions? No one talks about it. How can God be love, yet send four billion people to a place, all because they don't believe? No one talks about it. Christians can be the most judgmental people on the planet. They can also be some of the most beautiful and loving people. But it's not for me. I am not in anymore. I want genuine truth, not the I-just-believed-it kind of truth. Science keeps piercing the truth of every religion. Lots of things help people change their lives, not just one version of God. Got so much more to say, but for me, I'm keeping it real. Unfollow if you want. I've never been about living my life for others. All I know is what's true to me right now. And Christianity just seems to me like another religion at this point. I could go on, but I won't. Love and forgive, absolutely. Be kind, absolutely. Be generous and do good, absolutely. Some things are good no matter what you believe. Let the rain fall. The sun will come up tomorrow. Uh, I would love to dissect each one of those things and answer them, um, but that's not what we're doing today. But uh, this is a sad reality for someone who has a very small view of God. Uh, This is a sad reality for someone who sits under teaching from people who have a very small view of God. In fact, this man went on again just this Monday uh, and wrote this post. Dear Christianity, my message to you is one of love. Love your enemies. Do good to those who persecute you. By this will all men know that you are my disciples by the love you have for each other. No judgment, no condemnation. We are all humans, all cut from the same cloth. I know Christians don't all agree on many different doctrines, but we can all love love covers a multitude of sins, love keeps no record of wrongs, love never fails. My guess is that this person received some hateful messages from Christians from his original post, and this was his response there's a lot of um, there's a lot of confusion in this there's a lot of I'm rejecting this, but I want to accept the teachings that come from it. There's a lot of confusion coming out of here. and I, you know, I think a lot of the, the thoughtful people that were writing in response, they, they felt sorry for this man. But they also, they also needed to defend the truth. <clears throat> what they knew was true, because this person has a position of influence. They had a, a, a sizable following and many of the people who responded to him in love wanted to make sure that those followers of his knew that his reality was not reality that there were answers to all of the questions that that, that it's not that no one's talking about those things people have been talking about those things since the beginning of time those questions that he's raising and, and the issues that this, I think the issue is that this man does not have his foundations in Christ. I don't think he actually truly knows Jesus. And, and I'm not, I don't want to uh, suppose too much here. Maybe he was just in a moment of doubt and, and he wrote these things. I, I don't know. I can't, I can't read his heart. Obviously, he knows scripture. He's quoting it back to us from these posts. I know some of the songs he has sung, and they most certainly reflect God and his character. But it it seems that it was never real for him. It was never a reality. He was sort of, perhaps, coasting on the fumes, uh, you know, whether it was that he was raised in a Christian family and never really had his own faith, or, or perhaps the fame and the popularity that came from being in that Christian music world. Whatever it was, it was not foundational, it wasn't built on the foundation of Christ and who He is. And it breaks my heart. <clears throat> I saw a quote from uh, Vodi Bakum, who's come and preached here several years ago, and I think this summarizes a lot of what we're seeing today. This is what Vodi writes: "The modern church is producing passionate people." with empty heads, who love the Jesus they don't know very well. Passionate people with empty heads who love the Jesus that they don't even know. And I think that's probably what we're seeing with this musician. And my heart breaks for him, and I do pray that he does come to the understanding of Christ as his foundation at some point, sooner rather than later, but it's just as our dear friend was, uh, Jonah was coming to an understanding of who God is in the belly of a fish of all places. Last week we looked at uh, God's character uh, as revealed in Jonah chapter 1. We, we saw that the whole world is the Lord's and there's nothing that God doesn't see. Uh, we looked at how God is sovereign over all the earth and it is impossible to fight against this God. And finally, we saw that God is the God of surprising grace. Grace for the pagan mariners who are on the boat. Grace for the Ninevites, as we'll see next week. Grace for Jonah, who's being swallowed up by this fish. And ultimately, grace that came in the form of Jesus, who makes a restored relationship with God possible. And now we find Jonah (laughs) in the innards of a giant fish. As strange as this story always sounds, I think sometimes um, the Sunday school model we get too familiar with the story, and we don't we we don't see the absurdity of what's taking place. You see, we will never understand Jonah's prayer until we understand that the grace of God has already begun; it's already started to operate in. Jonah's life, before he even has the sense to pray, because he would be in no place to pray if it were not for the amazing grace of God. And even though Jonah turned more than once from the Lord, the Lord never turns from Jonah. And so here is this man in this absolutely bizarre place, and he's in this bizarre place because he is loved. Not because he's forgotten, but because he's loved. He is loved by the God of grace. And the God of grace is intent on turning this stubborn man from his willful desires, from what he thinks is best for him, and, and And, as we're going to do, as you as you work through this prayer, you you can begin to see the heart of Jonah turning, slowly turning, slowly turning, progressively turning. Now this was written in a, it's in poetic form, obviously. so it's a break from the narrative, traditional narrative that we've read in chapter one. And as in most of the psalms, The poetic form has a a model, and I think it represents the way that the human mind and our emotions flow, because we don't tend to turn back immediately, do we? If we've hardened our hearts to God in some area of our lives, if we have gone astray over some issue or some thing, we don't tend to turn straight back and run. It takes time. There's a, uh, there's a process of being drawn back. That's what this poetic structure is showing us. And so we look at verse 2. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and He answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. I was headed for death, and I cried out, and you responded. It's by God's grace that Jonah has a voice and an ability to cry out to God. It's by God's grace that he has an opportunity to repent. And in some sense, it's not a great start for Jonah. I called out to the Lord out of my distress. And sometimes I want to say, well, Jonah, that distress is there because of you. You caused your own distress. It's not by random chance that you were thrown over the ship into the sea. It's also not by random chance that you are now inside of this giant fish. I read this and I want Jonah to repent immediately and to confess everything right then and there. But then this passage, it forces me to look into a mirror and I realize that I don't do that either. Because the reality is that I do not run back in full confession in my sin. I, I probably pray uh, something similar to Jonah when, when something is challenging, especially if, if it's a result of some poor decision on my part or some sinful thing that I'm clinging to, and I say, oh, Lord, help me, when it's something that I have brought upon myself. I think that's a reality we need to face, and yet God is gracious and He hears us well, verse 3, Jonah, he seems to be catching on. He's got a bit more clarity here. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. He, he, he knows this is not just a consequence of living in a, in a fallen world. Jonah's beginning to understand and or remember that, that, that this was ordained by the sovereign God And so we begin to think maybe Jonah is a little closer to admitting his guilt. God, this distress was brought on me by you. It's not random. Here's here's an interesting thing to think on. It's not always a pleasant thing to think on, but it's, it's interesting. God, in His love, will distress us. And then as that distress does its work in our lives, the same God relieves us. Because He is not mean, He's not fickle, He's not malicious, He's not trying to hurt us. His desire is not that we would needlessly suffer but He is intent on redemption. And He allows trouble into our lives in order to create the turning. That is His will. That is His will. This is not just random distress in Jonah's life. This is not random. This is uncomfortable grace of a redeeming God. Uncomfortable grace of a redeeming God. That has brought trouble into this man's life, but it is good trouble. The trouble of a God of love, the trouble of a God of redemption who's seeking after us. And Jonah begins to remember God for who he is, something he had forgotten. He begins to regain a right perspective on his Creator. Because here's the thing, God is God. He will continue to be who He is forever. He does not change. We are the ones who shift and change. We are the ones with the fickle hearts that are, are, are cast about and blowing in the wind. The question is, where will we go when circumstances and challenges come our way? Do we trust God? Reminds me of the story of Robert Robertson, the man who wrote, uh, Come Thou Fount. If you don't know his story, he was, um, uh, when he was eight years old, uh, Robertson lost his father, and his grandfather, his, his dad's father, refused to support the family uh, because he had not approved of the marriage. And so, Robertson was sort of a, a re- rebellious boy growing up, and uh, with a group of friends, they sort of stumbled into one of George Whitfield's uh, evangelistic services. And hearing the preaching of Whitfield, he was moved, and he converted to Christianity, and he became a preacher, and his whole life had transformed and changed. And then, obviously, something had happened. I don't know what it is, and he'd obviously walked away at some point, and he finds himself sitting on a stagecoach with a woman who begins to sing the song, Come Thou Fount. And she looks at him and she says, what did you think of that song? And here's what he replied, I am the wretched man who wrote that song years ago, and I would give a thousand worlds if I could feel now as I felt then. I hope that that man who is the singer songwriter we discussed at the beginning would feel that. That he would remember if there was any sort of foundation that was there, that he would have a desire for that. That people would come alongside him and remind him of the truth of the gospel, and he would desire that and not whatever this is that he has chosen. Verse 4 I am driven away from your sight yet I shall look upon your holy temple. What a strange thing to say. Sometimes in our modern era, we we don't fully understand these things. Jonah is beginning to think of the presence of God, the very thing he's running from, the presence of God that resided in the temple, that Shekinah glory, that, that, that A visible manifestation of God and Jonah is beginning to turn towards the presence of God, the man who had resigned his post as a prophet and he wanted to escape the presence of God. Remember last week we said that Jonah knows that he cannot escape the eyes of God and the sight of God, but somehow he wants to escape his presence, whatever that means. And here we see the beginning of his turning away from his own desires his, his hatred for the people of Nineveh, for the people that are not the Jewish people. And he begins to see things from God's perspective. Verse 5, The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. What a picture of a deep sea adventure. Bottom of the sea, the weeds begin to suffocate you, and it, and it feels like it's the end. What a picture of what it can feel like when we are weighed down with despair. Whether it's from our own sinfulness or from situations and circumstances that have come to us, we despair. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, when facing a similar situation of seemingly imminent death, for different reasons, writes this, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Jonah says, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet... Yet, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, I remembered the Lord, I remembered the Lord, I remembered the Lord. Jonah was so caught up in his own plans. He was so caught up in what he wanted. He was so self focused. And in that focusing on self, it means that he was not focusing on God. And in Jonah's attempt to run, he started to ask himself what he wanted instead of asking God, God what was his will. And deep in the belly of this great fish, Jonah remembers. Jonah remembers it's not about him. He remembers the love of God. He remembers His office as a prophet. He remembers His source of hope and source of life. He remembers the graciousness of God. This is the operation of that grace. The operation of the grace of God. God makes us rational again. He makes us love again. He makes us see again. He makes us feel again. His grace makes us alive again. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I am constrained to be. Verse 8. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. What is this talking about? What's he saying here? Jonah's probably thinking of the idols to which the, the, the pagan mariners were praying to when the seas were really rough. And they cried out for help to these statues of wood or the, 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 the tribal gods that they knew. But there's no response. It reminds me of Elijah when he challenges those prophets of Baal and, and they cry out for fire to come down and burn their altar and they're even cutting themselves with swords because they believe so wholeheartedly that these gods will respond. And there is silence. Then Elijah calls to Yahweh and the wood and the water and the sacrifice and even the prophets are all destroyed by the flame. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Anything that stands between you and God, anything you place on the throne of your life, whether it be a career or a relationship or the desire for even a good thing or a ministry, because these things have become ruling things. And so you make your decisions with these things at the front of your mind. They're the first filter that everything runs through. You see things through the lens that affects whatever it is that you desire. If a career is detoured and you look at it with desire for career lenses, then that situation looks catastrophic. If a relationship ends or is stressed or strained, you look at it with a desire for relationship lenses and that situation looks debilitating. But when we have gospel lenses, when we have Christ-centered lenses and filters on, we see things differently. We see steadfast love. We have some sense of the distress being used for our good and God's glory. Even though we may not see the end, I had lunch um, just last week with a, a guy in his late 30s and early 40s, and he's single, and I asked him how he felt about his singleness. Now that I say that, that sounds uh, inconsiderate, but I, I think I did it gently. <clears throat> his response to me was that he was devastated. I'm devastated. He had this desire to be married and he could not see past it. I told him that marriage will never fulfill whatever void he has. Marriage is not that last hole in you that that needs to be filled in order for you to be complete. In fact, if you place that much hope in marriage... You will feel very let down by marriage. Because marriage is a great help. It is a tremendous blessing. It is a beautiful thing. But it is not easy, nor is it your everything. That foundation has to be Christ. In fact, in order for a marriage to thrive, its foundation has to be Christ. Verse 9. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What is he thankful for? He is thankful for God saving him from death. He's thankful for God saving him from himself. He's headed for death. He had completely forgotten God until God pursued him and saved him from himself and from death. What does it mean by I will make sacrifice to you. Sacrifice in the Old Testament is almost always used in relation to sin. From the very beginning, the sacrifice of the animal that God uses to cover Adam and Eve's nakedness and their shame in the garden, the sacrifice of the lambs Uh, during the Passover to signify God's passing over the sins of His people, the animals that are sacrificed under the law as atonement for the sins of individuals and corporately. It's almost always linked to sin. And so Jonah is no longer saying, it's just some kind of distress that's fallen on me and you rescued me from that random distress, The, the circumstances of a fallen world. That's what it sounded like at the very beginning when he says, I called out to you and, you and you saved me in my distress. No, no. He's saying, God, it was me. It was me. I, I looked you in the face and I said, uh, no. I know where you want me to go. And my answer is no. I am not going there. I'm not going to those people. I am not doing your will. I want my way. And I will flee your presence even if it is the last thing I do. But now I stand before you and I say the greatest problem in my life is not the general problem of trouble in a fallen world. The greatest problem in my life is my sin. The greatest problem I will face is the problem that is inside of me. And I acknowledge that. So I come with a thankful heart to offer thanksgiving to you. Because I acknowledge that I am my greatest problem. His conclusion? Salvation belongs to the Lord. I cannot save myself. I cannot outrun you. You rescued me. You rescued me from the watery grave. You rescued me from more than that. You saved my life soul. Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be there, will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. There came a greater Jonah, and this Jonah found himself also in dire distress, but not because he had rebelled against God like the first Jonah, but rather because he was obedient and he was distressed by the plan and the purpose of God. Peter makes that clear in his first sermon in Acts, that it wasn't just the work of evil men, it was the foreordained plan of God that led Jesus to the cross. He was distressed because of the redemptive plan of God, but he was not distressed because he was a sinful, rebellious man. He was distressed because he was a spotless lamb, willing to take on the sin of humanity so that redemption could become a reality. And then there was this separation from the Father and the Son, the sin that was laid upon the Son was too much for the Father to look upon in His holiness. And so He has to turn His back, breaking what up to that point had been a complete union of the Godhead. And Jesus, in the face of that, does what is the only right thing to do. He commits Himself to his heavenly father. He places himself in that moment of terrible suffering and separation into the hands of his father, the one whose plan this was from the beginning. And he goes down into the earth. The second Jonah doesn't just face death, he dies. And then he's vindicated by his Father. He rises again, now the conqueror of sin and death. That dark moment of sin and disaster was a glorious moment of grace. And because of that moment, we can have salvation. Jonah says again, verse 9, Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation from the the fish, salvation from His circumstances, Excuse me, circumstances, but more than that, it is salvation for our eternal souls. Salvation of our eternal souls. God is the God of grace. God is the God of grace. God is the God of grace. Don't run from Him. Don't run from Him. You go to Him. He's calling to you. He has demonstrated His love and His forgiveness in the greatest way possible through His Son. Don't wait to be on the threshold of death to get right with God. Make this a daily event. We need to remember that when we are dealing with others that repentance is a process. We cannot rush it. We speak truth in love, but we trust that God is doing His work. And we have to be patient. We need to remember that distress is always pointing us back to our reliance on God. Put away the lens of anything that would supplant Christ. Put on those gospel-centered filters, lenses that help you see what God is saying and doing. And trust Him. And trust Him. And trust Him. Because He is trustworthy. For salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your daily trials, your daily struggles, and your overall life trajectory. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Trust Him. Trust Him. Trust Him. Let's pray. Father, we pray that this has not fallen on deaf ears. Oh, that we could learn the lesson of Jonah. The lesson of Jonah is that you are good and gracious. You are not malicious. You are not spiteful. You're always willing to forgive. Always willing to Look past if we come and we confess and we lay those sins and those things down at your feet. But we have to do that. We have to come to that point. And sometimes you wait for those disasters in our lives to do that. Just like in Jonah. Oh, that we would be people who would turn and repent as soon as this sin is committed as soon as the thought takes place, as soon as the deed is done, that we would be quick to turn to you and remember that grace comes from you. You're not sitting around waiting for us to mess up and fall. You're sitting there waiting for us to remember you. You're not even sitting there. You're chasing after us. Oh, that we would turn around. And see the pursuit of a loving God. Oh, that we would be reminded that salvation comes from the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Because of Christ. Because of what He has done. He has made that available to us. Help us to have repentant hearts, Father. We pray this in Christ's name.